Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Emran Hughes, editor of Insurance Post, and today I'm joined by Alliance Global Corporate and Specialties Michaela Moreau, Cybercube's John Choi, and Aviva Stephen Ridley to talk about developments in the cyber insurance market. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, we're excited to have with us a packed panel of guests. With me is Stephen Ridley, head of cyber at Aviva. Michaela Moreau, Regional Head of Cyber, London and Nordic for Alliance Global Corporate and Specialty, and John Choi, Principal Consultant of Cybercube. My stellar panel of guests are going to share their views on what insurers need to do to raise the bar for cyber cover. Hello, Mike, Michaela, Stephen and John. Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Hello, Emma. So, Stephen, if I start with you, how are carriers currently raising the bar for cyber cover? It's one of the areas where we've seen probably the most amount of development over the last couple of years um, in the cyber market beyond kind of um, some of the stuff we've seen around pricing and, and terms is around the, the wider value proposition that insurers are giving their customers. So we've gone through a period where there's been a higher expectation of customers around what they have to do to be able to, to buy cyber insurance in the first place. And so we're seeing things flip around to being able to provide more support to help customers achieve um, those those aims. So that's where we've seen the most amount of development at the moment, whether it's through the provision of consultancy support or things such as like vulnerability scanning and, and things like that. Um, and we're seeing that have a have a meaningful impact on um, on kind of how customers are protecting themselves. Michaela, how are you seeing carriers raising the bar? I absolutely agree with the, the previous statement. And on top of that, I, I think that as an industry, well, we're insurers, so we tend to learn from past losses and past claims. And I think that as an industry, cyber insurance, uh, we have definitely tried to share as much as possible of that knowledge with our clients. And we provide ongoing feedback of what we're seeing in the market, what we're seeing in um, specific industries to really raise awareness and help our clients raise the bar. John, would you agree that's how they're raising the bar, by raising awareness with clients? Yeah, absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, The insurance industry is absolutely going to be raising awareness through additional technology and scans, as Stephen mentioned a second ago, supporting their clients from a risk engineering perspective. Um, You've seen a lot of exciting developments throughout the market in terms of these cyber MGAs who are kind of all-in-one, who provide these kind of services alongside the insurance services to their respective clients. And for those incumbent insurance companies who might not have that type of technology stack in-house today, they're certainly partnering with technology ecosystem throughout the market to then better enable themselves to offer these types of value-add propositions to their end clients. And I mean, touching on the point that you raised there, um, John, how are cyber insurers requiring businesses to reduce their cyber risk internally, you know, before they even apply for cover these days? Yeah, there's a handful of things that they're starting to require folks for. Um, For example, one of the easiest ways for threat actors and hackers to then get inside a business is through phishing attacks and essentially uh, getting login details from unwitting victims. Um, One of the easiest ways to get around this, for example, is using multi-factor authentication, which is what then sends you that six-digit PIN code to your cell phone or through another app that you might have before you can properly log into certain systems. And many insurers these days are requiring very simple, um, simple 
things like this, like MFA technologies to help them circumvent potential threat actors. Um, so, so it's these sort of basic cybersecurity hygiene points that we're starting to see insurers more and more adopt and require from their policyholders. Michaela, what actions are you seeing insurers requiring from policyholders? As John pointed out, we've learned so much from what I've been calling the ransomware pandemic for the last couple of years. And we've definitely seen from the claims activity, as John pointed out, a number of absolutely key controls that really make up for that minimum baseline. And when um, we do not see those controls, um, unfortunately, then on a very case by case basis, we need to make sure that we adjust our policy offering uh, to our clients. And that could take very different forms. Um, So in the worst case scenarios, we might actually not be able to provide cover at all. But um, as insurers, we always try to find a solution for clients. But of course, with potentially very different terms and conditions being made available, uh, be it, for instance, higher um, deductibles, higher retentions, or lower capacity, lower limits being um, deployed. Uh, But in some cases, even coverage restrictions. For instance, uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen introduction of uh, ransomware co-insurance clauses, which are exactly aimed at providing a clear incentive for our clients to actually raise the bar and fix those basic cyber hygiene gaps. Mm, Stephen, what controls are Reviva expecting? And, you know, how much can insurers do to get an, an organisation's house in order? So I think it's it's one of the things that the market just needs to be slightly mindful about, actually, is that, uh, to Michaela's point earlier, where the insurance industry is very good at looking back at what has happened historically and then adjusting based on that um, I think there's a risk of over-reliance on that in cyber which is an area that is is far more dynamic that changes far more readily than any other line of business and for me it's not just as simple a case of saying these are the steps that would have prevented these types of incident that we saw um, over the last two years we need to think slightly differently because if all customers fix those issues, handle those matters that would have prevented all of those types of attacks, criminals will just pivot and and look at something else. There'll be another area that gets neglected if we focus too much just on those. So my approach um, personally and what I try and advocate internally and we try and implement throughout our whole process is taking a more holistic view to things for for want of a, a better word I know it's a horrid word to use around any of these things but really considering how does a customer best protect themselves and I like to use the the NIST framework as as the starting point for that so looking at how does a customer identify what their risks are how do they protect against them how do they detect if something goes wrong how do they respond and recover from it and at very high level just allowing that customer to, to tell a story um, around that and making our underwriting decisions based on that overarching approach to cyber risk more generally rather than having a pure tick list of, um, of measures that would have prevented what happened in the last couple of years. Mm. Can I add one comment, Emma? Yes, of course. Because uh, we talk, John talked about MFA earlier, and we can't forget that, that hackers and criminal actors in general do try to find ways around some of the controls that we now see as best practice. So tomorrow, 
those might not be sufficient anymore. So uh, this is really about, as Stephen was pointing out, making sure that the client has a culture of continuous improvement because hackers and threats develop and we can't just stand still. Indeed. I mean, John, on that point made by Stephen and Michaela, the criminals, their activity constantly pivots, it continues to evolve. Is it, you know, in terms of how much can insurers do to get an organisation house in order, I assume it's the insurers as well as the policyholders having to continually evolve their knowledge and understanding of what's coming down the line in terms of possible threats in this area and taking action to mitigate the risk. Yeah, I absolutely agree with, um, and I can see both sides of of the argument here. I, I think what I'm thinking of is, you know, in terms of these basic hygiene requirements, um, this is like, and I like to talk a lot in analogies, but this is like, you know, wearing a seatbelt in a car. You often want to wear a seatbelt to maintain that safety. And as we've gone through the decades, cars have improved. They've gotten faster and lighter and more responsive. But it's still, you know, the safety belt is still the one thing you want to do when you hop into a car. I think some of these basic hygiene things um, that we're talking about here are very analogous in that way. Threat actors will continue to evolve and change their tactics and their motivations and the techniques they use to breach companies. But if we can at least practice basic hygiene, cybersecurity hygiene, and those those best practices, that only carries forward as the threat actors continue to evolve and will adapt our own cyber hygiene practices at organizations, how we support those organizations from a cyber insurance perspective as well. And obviously, given the reputational damage that can be done when um, a cyber um, attack takes place, um, what, given that, um, John, why are insurers cautious about kind of building reputational damage into business and cyber packages? Why don't we see more of that in the cover that's on, available? Yeah, and, and reputational damage is a bit of a tricky one, um, at least from my perspective, coming from a cyber risk modeling company. Um, you know, it's one that's really tricky to quantify. Um, you know, who's to say uh, whether you've suffered a reputational damage at your company or not? Um, it's really after the fact until you fully realize what the, the impacts of that are. Um, from a pricing perspective, it's very difficult as well. Um, you have the very tangible crisis management and event response types of costs when it comes to reputational damage. But who's to say how much revenue you've lost as a result of reputational damage? In some cases, it might be very clear. In other cases, it might not be as clear um, as businesses will have various uh, you know, ebbs and flows in terms of their daily revenues or monthly revenues throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen, why are insurers reluctant to include that type of coverage? Well, well we do include it in, in our product. And I think for me, it's less around um, than kind of being able to specifically adjust a claim to say that this this loss is purely down to a reputational damage incident. But what it avoids is if there is just a BI loss full stop, you're not arguing around is this wholly as a result of the the network being offline. It makes that element of adjustment slightly easier. And whilst yeah there are some incredible challenges around actually trying to determine how much of a loss is reputationally driven what the the impact of that is how you need to build it into your pricing models actually at a point of claim when a customer's had a bi loss not having to worry about is this down to the network being unavailable like it's it's an extra piece to make it much easier to get that claim covered indeed and michaela what do you think in terms of the level of coverage i think that i definitely share some of the concerns that john just went through. Um, From my perspective, 
what I think that as an industry we should strive to achieve is that contract certainty and that absolute clarity in terms of what is covered and what is not covered under a policy. So I do think that there's probably additional work that as an industry we could do in terms of clarifying what should be covered under business interruption versus what should be covered elsewhere. And as John stated, handling claims, modelling the type of losses linked to the adverse media coverage uh, following a cybersecurity event, data breach, and so on, it's extremely difficult to quantify. And I think it also comes down to like the claims handling and the service we provide our clients in that respect. So you want that service to be as quick as possible and not necessarily spend a lot longer in just trying to figure out the potential amount and the correct amount and avoid then any potential disputes between the insurer and the client. So I think that as long as we do not invest in clarifying what needs clarifying in the existing policies and then coming up with more meaningful policy language in respect of reputational harm, I'm a bit cautious. I would be cautious in that approach. I think there's probably a distinction in this and as there is in many, many elements of um, of cyber coverage in how you handle things from a, an SME perspective to a to a corporate side of things. Um, they quite often get, or we talk about cyber as one type mm. of risk, one thing, but I think in reality it, it is, it manifests itself in a very different way and the, the impacts are very different for an SME um, what they are for a, a corporate business as well as just their levels of, of sophistication internally and the, the products and propositions that we give to to SME customers has to be very different to, to what we give to corporate customers. I mean as you touch on there um, Stephen cyber attacks seem to be becoming more frequent more sophisticated more varied in you know the tactics um, that are deployed by these criminals are insurers increasing the information requirements, therefore, from organisations to qualify for cover or to simply personalise the cover, I imagine, more f- to make sure it's suitable for the nature of the, the varied nature of businesses that could be attacked? It's definitely been a symptom that we've seen of the, the harder market conditions over the last couple of years. Um, information requests have been um, much more significant, it's safe to say, um, over the last two years than they were prior to that. We've gone almost from one extreme to the other. Um, Pre-2020, there was a a rush to the bottom in terms of asking as as few questions as possible. We then went all the way to the top of that mountain and asking for every single piece of information possible. And we're now starting to settle down into somewhere more of a a middle ground with that. Personally, I've always taken the approach of only ask for information if you're going to to do something with it. There has to be some kind of pricing input, some risk acceptance output on the back of it. So, I, so I like to think that um, that we've been fairly pragmatic throughout the whole period. Um, but it's safe to say that even still now, much more information is required. And actually, if a customer is able to volunteer a lot more of that information to tell that story ahead of time rather than needing us to go back and ask a load of different questions quite often that can be headed off at the the pass and the process can be um can be much more comfortable for for everyone 
And also we're starting to use things such as Cybercube's tools, which can help to shortcut some of that. If we're able to do some of that external scanning or use some of their market insights to inform what the companies of this type typically look like, we can start asking some more pointed questions rather than um, and trying to get to the, the nub of a matter rather than just having to ask every single question that you might possibly want to know about any type of company. John, do, do you feel, um, as Stephen touched there, touched on there, that the industry is getting closer to kind of asking the right for the right amount of information and using external sources such of data such as yourselves to um, minimise, you know, the, the amount of information they're requiring from policyholders. I- I think it's evolving. Yeah. <laughs> as as Stephen touched mm-hmm. on, you know, during during the hard market times, we tend to ask a lot more questions as an industry, um, sometimes to our own detriment. And, and to that exact point, you know, how do you feed this into, say, an underwriting framework or a pricing framework? Um, certainly, where we support our, our clients is with that some of that data capture, what types of technologies are used and what types of vulnerabilities do you have on your networks? There's only still so much that you can gain from that information, mm-hmm. right? And this is, this is all done without... Um, um, you know, from from the perimeter, it's kind of like walking around a building and seeing are there security cameras on the outside of the building or how close are they to the fire hydrant, for example. Um, but without the context of what's actually going on inside the business, and that can only come from having that that questionnaire and that conversation, have the right having the right amount of questions um, as part of that underwriting process to the companies themselves. Um, I think that context is, is the more difficult thing to capture from a technical pricing or a modeling perspective. Who's to say which technologies are you using, how important are each of these technologies, or if a certain port is uh, that's open for a certain service, is that really important or should that be um, left open? Um, Who's to say? Um, Michaela, where do you think the industry is in terms of the, request, the amount of information that's required from policyholders today? As we've already discussed, I think that in the last couple of years, there was a moment of, let's call it general panic for clients when, you know, when insurers first started asking a much higher number of questions, really. Um, But I think that we've evolved from that point. And I believe that, first of all, clients have become more familiar with the type of questions and why we're asking those questions. And I think that brokers have been really instrumental in messaging all the reasons why we're asking all those questions and how they fit into our own underwriting process. So I think that in general, I think there's more acceptance towards insurers asking questions. And I mean, I was probably talking to a client not too long ago who was actually pushing back on some questions um, from some carriers because clearly, you know, they don't have necessarily the patience to go through questions that they don't see as relevant for their own organization. So it's also about like the knowledge and the level of expertise of underwriters in the market to be able to make those decisions in terms of okay, so this is the list of questions that have been mandated from the top to ask uh, versus what is actually relevant for the specific risk that I'm looking at. And I think that as an industry, we're all learning still um, and we continue to learn on a daily basis depending on the trends that we're seeing. Um, So the next ransomware pandemic, we'll see what those questions are going to look like, how they will evolve. 
Um, but I think that in general, we've definitely seen the need for more specific um, questions around very targeted themes. And I think that that is definitely part of our job. So we should do that as much as we possibly can within the boundaries of still being customer centric and not necessarily just asking questions for the sake of that. So as long as the questions are relevant, I feel that um, there've been a learning experience also for the clients because of course they learn from those questions, potential trends or potential themes that, that they might need to consider as part of their own cybersecurity um, program. I mean, as you touched on there, and possibly we've, we've talked a lot about the kind of evolving risks and the changing tactics of um, criminals in this area. But I suppose in terms of the industry itself, um, Michaela, how do you see um, insurers and brokers evolving, as you as you beautifully articulated there, over the next like, five to ten years? Is it taking everybody on a communications understanding journey in terms of the how increasingly essential this cover seems to be in terms of businesses? Yes, we've definitely seen the cover becoming a central part of a successful risk management strategy of uh, companies. If anything, because companies are relying more and more on technology to operate, regardless of their industry segment. So I do think that as an industry, we could do a lot more in articulating the need for cyber insurance, but also we could be better at listening to what clients need in terms of cyber cover. Um, we all know that the industry at the moment is nowhere near the size of more established lines of businesses, such as property or casualty. So we're still developing in that respect. And I think that listening to key trends and key changes in needs of our clients and develop solutions that are actually more and more relevant to them will definitely bring more maturity to the industry, but also grow the industry as a whole. And we can't just forget that in addition to what our client needs, we always need to keep an eye on what the cyber threats and risks can be and how they evolve over time. So it's definitely a joined up effort and uh, we do try our best between clients, brokers, insurers, um, analytics companies and uh, actuaries and all sorts of stakeholders. We definitely need to try and learn from each other as much as possible to, again, make sure that the industry is here for the future and for the long run. Steve, and what do you see um, ch- happening to the cyber insurance industry over the next five to ten years? Maturity, growth, as Michaela touched on? Yeah, that's that's definitely going to be a big mm. part of it. I think the, the market in five years, ten years will look massively different to what it does today. I mean, in, in no small part because the threat will look massively different to what it does today. And, and the key challenge that we've got in that period is keeping pace with that and trying to preempt it as as much as possible i'd say if if anything that's that's one of the things that that we haven't necessarily been so good at in in the past and kind of why we've seen this really steep hardening of the market is because we were a bit slow to react um to when things started to go wrong and and we can't afford to to be slow to react as and when things do take a big pivot again um so yeah i completely agree with the point around customer centricity being key to this and, and maintaining 
relevancy um, to customers. Um, there's a there's a big challenge around that from an educational standpoint, both for the um, the customer themselves, because I think a lot of what we do is is relevant for them. We just don't do a, a very good job necessarily of, of talking about it in terms that people understand. And part of that is a is a wider issue than just the insurance industry. Cyber as a as a word, as a concept, as a, a wider industry, when we think about the security space and everything as well, isn't great at communicating about this in a in a simple way, in a consistent way, is one of the things that we can that we consistently hear about being an issue in that everyone talks about things in a very different way. Everyone has their own slightly different either terminology or different lens on things often skewed by a little bit of bias based on where they sit in that value chain as well and for me it's a it's a big thing that we need to work on is gaining more consistency in messaging not just within the insurance industry around cyber but in a much wider context as well john what's your predictions for the next five to ten years will we achieve that consistency yeah, I don't know if, if the consistency point, um, I, I won't be able to prognosticate on that, but in terms of the next five to 10 years, I mean, if we look back to where cyber insurance premiums were globally back in 2020, I think we were at about 7 billion across the world. Um, today, we're probably around 14 billion or so. Um, by 2025, I think the projections are to 21 billion. Um, so certainly this is a growing line of business. Um, in, in terms of that growth rate, it certainly outclips the growth rate in terms of cybersecurity spend. We talk about this holistic view of cybersecurity. I think all this is to say that you can put up as many defenses as you want from a cybersecurity standpoint in your network, but with a motivated enough threat actor or hacker who wants to get through, that wants to breach your networks, they will do so to the extent that they have the right motivations and the right, um, really the right resources in place. Um, so I think all this is to say that the industry is starting to wisen up. Most industries are starting to wisen up. You certainly see this from your large cap companies, a little bit of your mid-corps, and I think it's only a matter of time until you start seeing more and more cyber coverage being purchased by your SME uh, companies throughout the market. Clearly, as criminals continue to target online businesses, the need for this cover will just grow and grow in the years to come. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Insurance Post podcast. I'd like to thank Michaela, John and Stephen for joining us and sharing their insight on the cyber insurance market and how it is evolving as attacks become more sophisticated. As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Insurance Post and following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Make sure you come back next week for a discussion about how data should be driving the M&A blueprint for insurers. Until then, this is Emran Hughes signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital.